Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome everyone to episode three. Uh, this week we will be talking about magic and your fascination with magic yeah absolutely and also the work that you did with the famous uh, magician paul daniels yeah paul was one of the was the biggest name in magic in the uk and i was very lucky to to work with him and and count him as a friend <clears throat> so uh, okay do your worst so as we touched on last week most of your professional life you were writing comedy for comedy performers mm-hmm. uh, but Five years ago, you started writing a series of novels, and you made your lead characters a pair of magicians. So why did you make them magicians and not comedians? Yeah, because they say, don't they, um, the advice is always write about what you know. Uh, And you'd have thought, yeah, you're right, I would have gone down the route of making my two detectives uh, comedians. But it doesn't sit very, very well. You know, when they're, I wanted them to investigate murders and whodunits and mysteries and stuff. And to have them cracking gags all the time, uh, it didn't ring very true. Uh, you know, there's this body lying here. Meanwhile, he's just do a couple of gags about it and then we'll crack on with the plot. It doesn't no. really ring true for a steampunk book either. I can't no. imagine in a sort of Victorian, which is much more dark, mm. dour yes. um, environment... Uh, to be cracking g- gags. That's true. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's a bit. And, and magic's more mysterious and swirly, misty, and it was in keeping with the Victorian era. And of course, there were a, a whole bunch of Victorian magicians going around. I mean, magic's been around since the Middle Ages, really. There were conjurers and shamans and various other folk that, uh, with um, misdirection and subterfuge, would mislead their audience for uh, entertainment purposes or. or purposes or for professional reasons um now i've always loved magic uh and i thought there's this there's an american magician called uh carl germain Uh, he was an american lawyer uh, called charles matmoiler or something he changed his name to carl germain and decided to give up the law hang up his uh barrister's robes or whatever it was uh, in the 20s and the 30s and become a, a proper on-stage magician. And Carl Germain said, famously, uh, known to me, he said that magic is the only honest profession. A magician promises to deceive and does. I suppose you could include politicians in that. <laughs> but they, none of those promise to deceive, but do. But, That's a good saying. Yeah, and uh, I put it as a logline in, in the first book, actually. I was so impressed by that saying and the thing about magicians Marky is that that they are in the world of sleight of hand they are professional deceivers Mm. and so I thought what's the best thing to do you can't kid a kidder 
as an expression that I heard. And so it should be easier, in inverted commas, for magicians to solve mysterious X-Files-type crimes than, than a comedian with a cigar saying, I say, I say, this person is dead. And, uh, you know, insert punchline here. Yeah. There's more magic in the other sense of the word, to have magicians as detectives. And as you rightly point out, yeah, you're, it's it's in keeping with the, the, the steampunk genre of the Victorian age. So, yeah, uh, magicians were a much, much better shoe-in for, uh, my, for my detectives. Is there a type of magic that you prefer? Because you, you often get sort of big illusionists that do these grand... Mm. Um, grand scale things I suppose a bit like Darren Brown or mm. some of um, yep. oh I can't think of his name David Blaine's sort of big yeah. performance types or more street magic close well, card tricks and sleight of hand as you mentioned yeah I, I, I very much like the sleight of hand stuff but I, the thing that really started me and my appreciation of magic were the big illusions um I mean, the real huge illusions, the sort of stuff that David Copperfield was doing in the, in America, you know, disappearing a Learjet, mm-hmm. you know, in front of an audience making the Statue of Liberty disappear, uh, escaping from Alcatraz, you know, straitjacketed in a... wound up tightly in a straitjacket in a cell in Alcatraz. And then through one series of events or another, we actually find him piloting the helicopter off of Alcatraz Rock. Those kinds of... Walking through the Great Wall of China, those kinds of great big illusions I really liked. I do appreciate this, oh, the skill and the dexterity of, of uh, close-up magic, producing those coins and those and those and that card sleight of hand. But the, the pure showbiz of the big illusions was the thing that really interested me. And that's what I try to impose on stage in the books. Mm. Big old steampunk, steamy um, equipment... Uh, in keeping with the genre. But it's got big and on-stage, in-your-face stuff. Because the characters um, are based out of a theatre themselves, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. The, the, the uh, My two steampunk magicians, uh, Michael Magister and Phoebe Le Breton, um, are residents at the Metropolitan Theatre of Steam, Smoke and Mirrors, which is the theatre that really existed on the Edgware Road. In fact, I was born not far from there in the Harrow Road in Paddington. I think I happened to mention that last time we spoke. And it, I actually saw the, the Metropolitan Theatre of Steam, Smoke and Mirrors when it was called the Metropolitan Music Hall and the Metropolitan Theatre. It became a variety theatre in the late, late 50s, early 60s. And then, because we were living in this... Um, hovel <laughs> a terraced hovel. a terraced hovel a terraced hovel uh, near the the Paddington goods yards it was called uh, Hampton Crescent it was demolished to make way for the Westway flyover coming in from the west into London and uh, the engineers and the architects and the surveyors got their got their uh, measurements out and their tape measure and they looked around well if, it's gonna, if the flyover is going to come here that theatre there is going to have to be demolished. So you had a, a close memory of the theatre itself? Well, a vague memory. Mm. Um, so what they did, they demolished the theatre. And then when they built the flyover, someone said, you know that theatre we demolished all the way down the road there? And they said, yeah. 
Well, we need the dam. Why? Because it's 200 yards away from where the dam flyover is now. So you've got one of those beautiful Frank Matcham theatres demolished in 1960-something for no reason because someone with my measuring abilities got their sums wrong. That's a terrible shame. Oh, tragic. So many of those theatres in London and and around the, the rest of the country designed by Frank Matcham and various other architects whose name I can't remember now. Beautiful theatres were all demolished in the 60s in a, in wholesale criminal larceny. It was dreadful, dreadful, dreadful um, destruction. Um, anyway, sorry, sorry. So I'm, this is a nice ode to, the, uh, to those theatres of old that you uh, enjoyed so much. Yeah, very much, very much indeed. And th- they were of the Victorian era and they were ornate... And, and grand and stunning to look at. And I always think that, that Victorian stuff is so stunning to look at. Mm. Ornate, probably overblown. They probably take so much trouble, but they had the time and, and the resources and, and the workforce to do it. So we know you have a deep love of magic. Yeah. Um, so how was it to actually get the chance to work with the most famous magician in the country at the time, Paul Daniels? Um, that must have been quite an experience for you. Yeah, absolutely, because I'd watched Paul on TV. Um, The Paul Daniels Magic Show was a huge show on BBC television, big Saturday night uh, entertainment show. And I was working as an associate, writing associate, on the Bob Monkhouse chat show at the BBC, where a whole bunch of guests would come in from the US, largely American comedians. But... Paul was invited to come on as a guest. So Bob would chat to him about his career and Paul would do a couple of tricks. So, yeah, I got to meet Paul Daniels in his dressing room. Uh, and we were going through what he might want to say, what, what, certainly what Bob was going to say and what he might want to say in response to Bob's questions. And I, I'd been doing my job a fair while. I'd been doing it ooh, 20 years, 15 years. I made the, I heard myself make the cardinal sin. I said... Um, Show us a trick. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you hear yourself say stuff and you think, shouldn't have said that. He'll go into one. Oh, you want to see it? Okay. Right. And he got his cards out. And there were several other people in the room. So he knelt down, put the cards on his on his briefcase on his lap. Uh, didn't Yeah, he sat down. The, the briefcase was on his lap. And he put the cards out. And he said, right, pick a card, any card. That classic line. So I picked my card and he shuffled and he biddled and doodled and duddled. And then everyone started laughing. And he said, your, your card was the Eight of Clubs. I said, yes, it was. He said, well, can you find it there? I said, well, I went through the, the deck. And I, no, I can't find it here at all. Where is it? And he said, well, look around. So I looked around and it was stuck to his forehead. <laughs> the card that I had chosen was stuck to his forehead. Ah, it was just, how the hell did you do that? That is fantastic. So that was the first time uh, I met Paul. And yeah, it, it was a buzz. Um, was he already, well, presumably he was already an established sort of magician and entertainer to be going on TV at that time? Because I imagine that's quite a hard, hard thing to get into, to be a TV magician. Yeah, there weren't many. The earliest memory I've got of a TV magician getting a series on, on, on the box was uh, David Nixon, a, a charming, bald very elegant, smooth-talking magician who was marvellous. And he had many, many a series of Thames Television on ITV. Um, and then, then Paul pitched up on the BBC. I know Paul 
made his debut on TV on a show called The Wheel Tappers and Shunters Social Club, which was a working-class variety show that came out of Granada Television, and wowed them on that show. He was terrific. And Paul had worked as an accountant for his local council up in, up in Yorkshire, but had always wanted to be a magician and studied magic, and then started working the clubs as a part-time magician and became very proficient. Then decided he wanted to become a professional. Um, and a mutual friend of ours, Howard Huntridge, managed to get Paul uh, a spot on Will Tappers and Shunters. Uh, I think, I think, maybe I'm being apocryphal. Um, John Hamp, the producer, either saw Paul or trusted Howard's words, um, booked Paul for an appearance on Will Tappers and Shunters. And I say, as I say, Paul wowed the place. He was terrific and he had a natural uh, television presence. And as a consequence, he got more TV and then landed a very long-running magic show called The Paul Daniels Show on BBC. Um, and did you work on that? No, never worked on that, interestingly enough. No. Um, the first time I really, really proper worked with Paul Daniels was on a quiz show. Did he do any magic on the quiz show? Never once. Really? No. Never ever cross-contaminated the two genres. That was really interesting. That's an observation that I hadn't considered. Yeah, good. No, um, I have to say that Paul Daniels was one of the best game show hosts I've ever worked with and ever seen. I put him up there with Bob Monkhouse and Bruce Forsyth. Why? What, what, what about him makes he's, you think makes ooh. you think that? Well, his total command of the game show. He knew the game backwards and he was, he was such an amusing fellow. He had a natural wit, mm. very, very fast brain. Uh, and uh, he, he could just drive it along in an amusing way. Because I suppose he was so used to pushing and pulling people around on stage when he was performing his magic. He was a he's very good interactor with or with the contestants. And so his command and his understanding of the drama and the entertainment of a game show, he was masterful at it. That's why I put him up there with Bruce and Bob. So here we are. I'm at Television Centre. I'm working on a couple of game shows like Bob's Full House and stuff like that. And the guy that directed the pilot of Bob's Full House, very clever Oh, a genius, called David Taylor, saw me in the corridor and said, what are you doing? So I said, oh, I'm doing Bob and I'm doing a bit for Karen Kay and stuff. He said, I'm doing a pilot with Paul Daniels. It's a game show. You want to come and do it? So I said, yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Just from the hallway. Yeah, because <laughs> that's what it was like in them days. You could be walking down television centre and someone mm. would say, oh, I've got a series. Do you fancy doing it? No need for a big, long, formal application and no, interview process. Any no, because at that time, I suppose, I was gaining a bit of traction and a, a bit of a, you know, a reputation. It's maybe the wrong word, certainly not with a capital R. But a lot of BBC entertainment producers knew I was there at television centre. And I knew David very well because I got on, him, got on with him very well at, on Full House. And this was his first opportunity to produce a show. I said, do you want to do it? Yeah, I'd love to do it. So we made this pilot called Every Second Counts. Um, rehearsed it for about a week and a half at Acton Rehearsal Rooms. Put the show on its feet and see what worked, what didn't. Because it was a failed American pilot. And someone brought it over. And I think Jim Moyer 
who was the head of entertainment at BBC in those days, said, have a look at this, David, see if you can make it work for Paul. And sure enough, with a plethora of ideas from Paul and David and Howard, Jan Vinnie and a bit, a bit of help from me, put this pilot on. And it worked ever so well. It just involved questions which bought you time and whoever got through to the end round would use that time in order to try and win the, the prize. Fascinating and clever concept, but Paul would impose entertainment on that concept, which for me was one of the main reasons it, 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 a failed American pilot ran on BBC television, television for eight series, nearly a wow. hundred shows. But it was purely down to the, the hard work and the tenacity and the entertainment nous of those people I mentioned to make that series work. So he had a, a very good presenting skill in of itself, mm. if it didn't need magic at all. No, absolutely. And he was he was instrumental in in this country. Paul Daniels was instrumental in this country for the method of bulk producing game shows. Because when I started doing game shows at the BBC, you would make two shows on a Saturday night, two shows on a Sunday night, and spend the rest of the week doing other shows, writing other shows, and preparing for two shows, two shows at the weekend. That was all weekend work, really. Oh, uh, yeah, well, well, absolutely. I suppose writing throughout the week, but... Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I spent most of my working life working weekends, for sure. No doubt about that. I mean, your mum will tell you <laughs> <laughs> to bring domesticity into it. I was never here at the weekend, and very often she wasn't either, because she was sometimes mm. working on these shows. Anyway, having said that, Paul said one day to David, the producer, why are we only doing four shows in a weekend? Why don't we do two shows a night for a week? That way we'll have 14 shows in a week as opposed to seven weekends. Mm. How many shows would there be per season? About 14, maybe 12. So you could do a season in a week? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And David said, no, I don't think it's possible. And Paul said, I think it is. If you do your preparation and get all your questions, he said, I can do it. I don't know what Howard and Colin can do, but it doesn't really matter what they can do, whether they can't, but I think we can do it. And David said, well, okay, I'll run it by. So he ran it by whoever was in charge of making these decisions. And the economic appeal of actually rigging the set for a week and then tearing it down, done, series finished, was much, much cheaper than putting up a, putting up the set on a Saturday morning, taking it down on the Doing Sunday night. Week, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every weekday. Oh, every weekend, sorry. So we tried it. And the first series was damned hard work. I mean, poor old David Taylor, God bless him, was was pale he was like a ghost at the end uh but paul was full of verve and energy uh even after making 14 shows in seven days but that really was the um the start i think of making a number of shows in a short space of time which is, of course is the way to do stuff now yeah well it definitely saves saves you money in the long run and i guess frees him up to do other things he wants to do on the weekend that's exactly the thing he knew that he could earn the same money in a week as it would take to earn in seven weeks mm. with a commitment to every second counts. And Paul was, if nothing other than a great great magician and a magnificent entertainer, uh, he was a, also very, very business savvy, which I think came from his accountancy background. I was just going to say, yeah. 
Um, so he famously wore a wig. Mm-hmm. But you say that you had a hand in him taking the wig off forever. Mm. Do you want to explain <laughs> how that occurs? Well, I, I can claim some credit for Paul Daniels removing his wig. Um, when I was working with the Bob Monk house, on Bobsall House and the chat show at the time, Bob was starting to go a bit thin on top. Uh, I can reveal that now. And he investigated various things. And he didn't want to really want to go down the wig route because I think he'd seen Paul's wig and thought, <laughs> it's a bit obvious. Not that Paul minded, actually. He often made jokes about the fact that he was wearing a wig. And I'll come to that in a minute, if I may. Anyway, Bob said to me one day, Neil Shand and I were in the dressing room and he said, gentlemen, gaze upon my pate. So we gazed upon Bob Monkhouse's head and his little bald spot at the back wasn't there anymore. And so I said, well, how's that? And he said, it's this. And he produced a tin of stuff. I'll call it what it is. It's called Maine. Um, I'm not using it. If anyone has seen my photograph, well, no, I was bald as a coot. But far too late for me. But Bob was using mane just to thicken his hair up a bit and just to lose that bald spot. And I happened to mention this to Paul Daniels in the dressing room the next week after we finished Full House and we started Every Second Counts. And I said, Bob said to me, gaze upon my pate. And he said, really? I said, yeah. Now, as I say, Paul had been making jokes about his wig on stage for years. I think he put the wig on when he first started losing his hair and then never really took it off. Changed it, but he always wore a wig. And I remember him coming into Television Centre one morning, one Saturday morning, saying, sorry, I'm late, gentlemen. He said, I lost my hair. <laughs> <laughs> he lost his, he put his wig down somewhere in, where he was living in, in Holland Park. So he was very open about it. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, anyway, next series, spin forward six months, we're doing another series of Every Second Counts. Walk into the dressing room um, for the... F- for the first taping and Paul says gaze upon my pit <laughs> and I, I looked and Howard looked and he'd taken the wig off and he'd sprayed the hair he had with this stuff and it was incredible it was apt he had a full head of hair and so that was the first time Paul on television didn't wear the wig and very few people noticed the difference it was really interesting so, Quite a brave thing to do, really. I, although I suppose if he was fairly comfortable with the fact that everyone knew it was a wig, but yeah. still, yeah. being a you know a, a showbiz performer, it's quite a difficult thing to have to deal with, I'm sure. Yeah, that's an interesting thing about Paul. The interesting thing about Paul was he had no real, he had a tremendous ego, of course he did, but he had no real self-conscious ego. Um, so that's a convoluted way of saying yeah I, I i had some hand in paul daniels taking his wig off and he wore mane from that day onwards and then as he got older and older he stopped using it and actually it was very apparent that he was bald but there was enough time lag between taking the wig off and coming out as a baldy with the mane to, to actually nobody cared at that time everyone always asks um <laughs> whether the performer is the same off stage as they are on stage. So how was Paul? What was he like off stage with you? Oh, he's lovely. Uh, I, I know I'm going to say that, aren't I? But no, I'm not going to say that if I don't mean it. But he was lovely to me personally. Um, I, I think he appreciated me as a hard worker. I've said this before. 
when we've spoken about work ethic. He knew that I put the hours in and I did the work uh, with contestant jokes and coming up with ideas for rounds for every second counts or bits of business he could do with rounds. So he, he knew I was a worker and I think he appreciated that work ethic. And I, uh, this was before I married your mum. I would, um, after a, a, a Sunday night two show or an end of a show uh, where we'd recorded two shows and we were back in television centre tomorrow to do two more, he would say, oh, you want to come home? Egg and chips. So I would follow him home in the home in the car, uh, me following in my Ford Escort and him in a, a Daimler with, green Daimler with, Bentley rather, with magic written on the number plate. We'd go to his house in, uh, in Denham and I'd sit and have egg and chips with Debbie and Paul after a show. And we'd talk about magic and stuff and he showed me all his magical props. He had the chair that was specially made for Houdini at the Magic Circle. That's very cool. Mm. It was in his house. And so many magicians and magic producers used to go to the house and have their photograph taken in the, the HH monogrammed Harry Houdini chair. Wow. Guess who didn't? <laughs> and guess who regrets it now? I'm sure, yeah. Mr. Stupid sitting here, yeah. So he was like that. Now, when we moved to where we live now, around the corner from where Paul used to live, um, we were going in for the last series of Every Second Counts. And I got in the car, flat battery, car wouldn't start. So I called him up around the corner and I said, I might be a bit late because I can't make the car start. He said, all right, I'll come round. So 20 minutes later, there's a big green Bentley with magic on the registration number on our drive outside here. And out he gets, he said, I've got jump leads. But he said, I'm not going to give it. Go, get in the car. I'll take you in. So I catched a lift with the host of the show, who was Paul Daniels, cool. who took me into television Zender. But he was quite prepared at the time to get the jump leads out and try and give me a jump start from the Bentley. And I can't think of many, 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 many performers who'd have actually done that. No, no. So he became a good friend, really. Oh, he really did. He, um, <laughs> I remember on one occasion, um, I was living in Chessington at the time, and at your mum's house and it went and be married long guard and the phone went oh it was seven o'clock in the morning oh are you up yes i lied <laughs> he said i've got to do a speech at the uh, not lord's taverners what was it the variety club in honor of lord grade can you do me some jokes about that so yeah when do you want them for lunchtime <laughs> I said it was a lunchtime now you're telling me he said yeah so it's okay well I love a challenge as you know and so I got to it and I I, kn I knew a bit about Lord Grade Lou Grade Sir Lou Grade and so I wrote my page of jokes in pretty good time actually about 9.25 the phone goes hello did I say Lord Grade I said yeah I meant Lord Delphont. And he put the phone down again. Oh, you. <laughs> but it was great. But you'd do it for him because he was he was that kind of guy. Uh, and you loved him. And we, um, uh, 
subsequently saw the show televised that evening and he did a lot of the jokes. It was, it was really lovely to see. But that was him. I mean, oh, okay, I'll bore you with this as it flashes through my mind. I told that story to Joe Pasquale. And Joe said, yeah, he said, that was my experience of Paul Daniels being a, a generous man. He said, I worked the, wasn't the Lord Taverners, it might have been the Variety Club or some such showbiz gig at the Dorchester when I was very, very new. And he said, I, all my props and I did all my physical stuff. And he said, I died on my ass." He said, they sat there and they stared at me. And I did my 15 minutes and I died on my ass. And I staggered off and thought, my career's over. So I'm sitting in the little room that they gave me. And I sat there and thought, damn it. Now I've got to go back out there in front of that lot. Mm. And there's a knock on the door. I open it up and there's Paul Daniels with all my props. He's gone on stage and he's picked him up. He's came backstage, come backstage knocked on the door there he was I've picked up your props son I know what it's like and Joe says to this day that was the kindest thing anyone in show business has ever done for him that's very kind yeah so that was the measure of the man you know was there a, a favourite trick that you ever saw him do <clears throat> or one that you thought well that was that was clever that really got got the audience wondering all of them actually they were they were all spectacular there are there's a lexicon of stand, standard in inverted commas, and I don't mean that disparagingly or lightly. Tricks. There are various things. Transpositions, um, production. I won't bore you with the, the laundry list. Um, but he was very, very dexterous at a, at a trick called the chop cup and was acknowledged to be the world's master of the chop cup, which involves balls and cups and producing balls from cups and rather like three card monte mm -hmm. uh, but in the end it winds up as a lemon and you yeah. think well how the hell did a ball become a lemon but he was his patter was so smooth and fast and his hands were so dexterous in performing the chop cup google paul daniel's chop cup trick and then you'll see what i'm talking about watch it on youtube i think it's on youtube that's mind-baffling, boggling, and other words beginning with B, which affect the mind. Uh, he, he was a, a, a quite remarkable performer. So impressive. I, I can't speak highly enough of him. He was immensely decent to me, and I, I am a great deal. I, um, when we knew him very well, um, and at the time I was, I was just seeing your mum. Actually, I just started seeing your mum, who was actually vision mixing on the Every Second Counts. And Paul found that fascinating. It's all, it's all. So you're seeing the vision mixer, are you? Well, I thought it was a fella called Bill Morton. No, it's not. It's, 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 it's a lady called <laughs> Catherine Randall. Oh, okay. Anyway, Paul and his wife, Debbie, Debbie McGee, who was his assistant on the shows, were getting married. Now, here's the thing. Paul said to me, Debbie's dad, Pat, has got to make the father of the bride speech. And he said, our wedding is going to be a bit full on. It's going to be, there's going to be... Lots of people and important people, I would imagine. Showbiz people yeah. and stuff. 
and he said we're taking a big marquee and we're putting it in the garden around the corner where he used to live in in, in um, Tarhurst Road anyway can you help Pat with his speech with his father of the bride speech so I said yeah I'd love to now as I've just said I was living um, married to your mum was I living no so you were dating yeah we were dating I knew that that um, yeah that's right I'm getting my getting my dates wrong sorry um I would go around to, to your mum's in Chessington frequently when I was pursuing her. <laughs> so I I spent five or six or seven or eight evenings with Paul's dad, Paul's father-in-law, Debbie's dad, because they lived in Chessington too. Okay. So, I, so not only did I write Pat McGee's script for his father of the bride's speech... I also helped him through it, gave him lessons in performance, <laughs> as much as I could do. And then we got, Catherine and I got an invite to the wedding uh, around the corner at Tilehurst. Magnificent wedding. And Paul was very funny when he made his speech. Debbie was marvellous. Then it came for Pat to make his speech, which went actually ever so well. And the, the crowd was very impressed because... They knew that he wasn't a pro. He, you know, he worked in a in a glass factory, I think, and it really went very well. And I think Paul and Debbie were grateful for the amount of time I devoted to making Pat look very good at Paul and Debbie's wedding. And I think th that did me that put me in. Uh, it bought me a lot of store with them, you know. Well, it's a kind thing to do. Yeah, I did it because he was a nice man. Pat and Babs, lovely couple. Oh God, he was a nice man, and I was so pleased that he did so well. Because um, it was an incredible wedding. My goodness me, it must have cost a great deal of money. But Catherine, your mum, and I were very fortunate to to be invited to that. And then, some months later, Paul and Debbie came to our wedding, which are a very modest affair down in Oxshot, <laughs> Oxshot in Surrey. Uh, and came to the reception afterwards. And in no way were they Paul and Debbie Daniels. No way. They were just two people that came to the wedding. They were Which that, is a nice not to take away the uh, the limelight. Absolutely, because it's Catherine's day and I just happened to be there as well. <laughs> but the fact that they took the trouble to come round from Buckinghamshire, right down to Surrey, was just lovely. And once again, you know, this, this is turning into a... And all hail Paul Daniels, but I, I make no excuses for that. Well, what uh, just to, to finish off, really, what what inspiration do you think that you took from Paul uh, and added into your book series and possibly your characters? Um, that that magic can have a sense of humour, and if you apply yourself diligently, you can be immensely creative with your magic. What he inspired me to do was take magic tricks and put my own spin on them for the Steam, Smoke and Mirrors book series, um, which kind of squares with what I said earlier on about there are only a few standard, inverted commas, mm. tricks. But the trick is to put the spin on them. I mean, most people can pick up any old book on magic and find out how these illusions are done. You can go on the internet and find out how these illusions are done. There are always people prepared to expose the trickery behind the trick. But don't matter... It's all in the performance. And because he was such a great performer, 
because he was so professional and importantly so utterly nerveless I've never seen anyone so calm in my life uh, other than Terry Wogan so calm before appearing on stage he taught me that and just confidence you know here's what you do son you shake their hand firmly and you look them straight in the eye and you say I'm Colin or what's your name and then you'll always remember it because I couldn't I could never remember people's names and they do that now and you know it works a treat that's a very good piece of advice <laughs> yeah yeah I picked up a bunch of stuff from um from the people I've met in my career but I've learned a great deal from Paul Daniels for which I'm enormously grateful and I was honoured to call him a friend well I think that's a lovely way to uh, end the episode thank you very much uh, Colin Dad for this uh, (laughs) thank you for this episode coming from now from behind the cold of that glass here in the septic tank (laughs) (laughs) and uh, I'll see you next week for more of the same see you next week Thank you.